The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. And today uh, we're going to look at Colossians 3 together. So if you have, I would highly encourage you to find something, uh, some kind of Bible. Uh, If you have a print Bible, that's awesome. If you have a Bible app, or if you don't, maybe even just pull out your phone and Google Colossians 3. Colossians comes in the New Testament after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, After the big letters, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you'll find Colossians uh, in there. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about something that happened to me several months ago, six to eight months ago. I had a friend who asked me, what gets you up in the morning? And to be honest, the question kind of caught me off guard. Because on the one hand, I do a lot uh, after I get up in the morning. I have three kids under the age of five. I'm a teacher. I'm involved at our church. I like to hang out with my friends, and I have a lot of interests. So I'm pretty busy. But on the other hand, the question was not, what kinds of things do you do when you get up in the morning? It was, what gets you up in the morning? What things motivate me to get out of bed and to to face the day? And uh, the question froze me because at first I didn't know how to answer him, which feels weird. Like, shouldn't I know what gets me out of bed? And then... Also, when I started to come up with my answer, I didn't really like it. What gets me up out of bed in the morning? I think if I was honest, most days, the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning is completing my tasks, like doing a good job, doing the things that I think I'm supposed to do in the different roles that I have. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe others of you are concealing concerned looks, wondering what this guy's got going on under the hood. Uh, And if that's you, I don't really blame you because that answer that came out, I didn't like it. Like, it felt really boring and selfish. Is that really what gets me out of bed in the morning? Um, So, unfortunately, I'm not here with, like, a changed man with four steps with how you two can have better motives in the morning. But fortunately for us... I'm here to open the Bible, and I think we're going to, the passage we're going to look at today, we'll see that God has something to say about that question. He cares deeply about each person that he's made in his image. He cares deeply about those daughters and sons he's welcomed into his family, which means he cares deeply about what gets us out of bed in the morning, and then consequently what we do after we get out of bed in the morning. So again, uh, we're looking at Colossians 3, 1 through 17. And before we read that, I'm going to give us sort of a big idea and how the, the verse, verses break down so we can kind of hopefully see it as we read. So the big idea, I don't know if I have that slide. Do I have that slide? Okay, belonging to Jesus means living for Jesus. When you belong to Jesus, that means you live for Jesus. And we'll see the first four verses of our passage have to do with what we want in life. And then the last 13 verses, if I did my math there right, is what we do when we live for Jesus. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. So if you've been raised, oh, I'm reading out of the uh, Christian Standard Bible, which uh, might mean a few things are different if depending on what version you have. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. And above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we want these words to sink into our hearts. We want them to be true of us. We want them to help change what we love, help change what we do, and help us uh, to see you more clearly as a God who's given much um, to not only welcome us in, but to show us how to live. So Lord, I pray that you'd be with me and be with us as we receive your words this morning. Amen. I think that the big idea of this passage, the thing that God wants us to, to see in this, is that belonging to Jesus means living for Jesus. But in these first four verses, <clears throat> there's really no talk of belonging. So where am I, where am I getting that idea? The language of belonging is kind of becoming a thing. It's a concept that's growing in popularity. I'm hearing it a lot in the education world, the world that I live in. And if you go to a school or work in a place or you're in some kind of space where people are thinking about the experience of the people in their building, there may be somebody thinking about how to help their people belong better. And I'm not like super well read on this, but what I have read, I've kind of pulled together what I think people mean by belonging. And it's this, a feeling of authentically being part of something bigger than themselves, or being bigger than yourself. A feeling of taking part in something bigger than yourself. And I think this is helpful for two reasons, just having this definition here. One, I think it's helpful because it's good. I, as a teacher, I want my students to have a sense of belonging in the classroom. Um, and I think a second reason why it's helpful is because it sort of pins down this craving that we want on a communal level. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And it kind of hints at 
our, our desire to take part in something not just bigger than ourselves, but ultimate. We really desire, as people made in the image of God, we, we really desire to take part in God himself, taking part in something ultimate. <clears throat> and I think that that's really what Paul's getting at here in this first four verses. Look again with me at, at these first four verses. Verse 1. He's describing our relationship with Jesus. So if you've been raised with Christ, verse 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see what Paul's doing? Paul does not, he's not under the impression that anybody in the Colossian church, which is who he's writing to here, actually died with Jesus on the cross, actually was buried with him in the tomb, and actually rose again with him when he rose again. He's, he's not, he doesn't think that of people there or of you and me. So what's he doing? Paul is saying that when we trust in Jesus, when we truly believe Jesus, his story becomes our story. If you're familiar with Christian vocabulary or, or theological words, what Paul's getting at here is union with Christ. Union with Christ in the Christian faith is that we believe that when we trust Jesus, something spiritual happens. We're actually... Um, united spiritually to Jesus. And that might sound weird, like I, like Siamese twins comes to mind for me, but it, it's a spiritual thing that happens, and I think it's really good news. And I want to remind us this morning why being united to Christ is such good news. On our own, our stories are incomplete at best and totally a mess at worst. This is the case because we live out our lives, we live out our stories without the author. Our disobedience or our total disregard for God alienates us. It makes God, the author, foreign to us. And without God in our lives, the Bible describes us as spiritually dead. That makes sense. If you don't have the source of spiritual life, how can you be spiritually alive? If you don't have water or any other liquid, how can you be considered wet? And what happens when we live out our lives without the source of spiritual life is that we, are, we bear the fruit of spiritual deadness, stuck in darkness without any real light, guilty and ashamed without any real hope, oppressed and abused without a real rescuer. But when we trust in Jesus, we belong to him. We actually take part in Jesus. His story becomes our story. And, and what this looks like is earlier in the letter, Paul, Paul kind of gives a, a snapshot of what this means for us when we embrace the author of, of the story. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. I think I have it up here. When you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. When we trust in Jesus, his death becomes our death to trusting in ourselves clinging to what we have done or have not yet done in this life. When we trust in Jesus, his resurrection becomes our life. We become holy and blameless before him. And 
welcomed in as his children. And when we trust in Jesus, the glory that he has when he comes again, he will share with you and with me as we perfectly, fully, finally enjoy a redeemed and renewed creation and body and life with him forever. One commentator, uh, when I was preparing this, he says, For what is to be more desired by us than this? that our life remain with the very fountain of life. So when we belong to Jesus, that means that his story becomes our story. And I want to say real quick that 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 doesn't mean that we lose ourselves. Because actually when Jesus' story becomes our story, we become more ourselves than we were before. We're not shackled by fear and shame, by guilt of the things that we have done or haven't done or the things that other people have done to us, we're freed from that. And so we can actually become who God has made us to be in all of our idiosyncrasies and all of our personalities, all the things that make us us. When Jesus' Jesus' story becomes our story, we are actually free to live our story. So the language of belonging isn't necessarily here, but the concept is everywhere. And it's, And what does this mean then for how we live our lives, how we live for Jesus? Look at the logic in verse 1. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Or another translation says, set your heart on things above. In other words, if you belong to Jesus, change what you desire as you walk through life. Strive to set your heart and set your mind on things above. But what are things above? In the text, it doesn't tell us right here what things above are. I think that setting our mind on things above it entails a lot of things, and we'll get to some practical things later in, this, in these verses. But generally, I think setting our minds on things above is doing life with God. Not leaving God behind in our hoping, our dreaming, our struggling, our suffering, our work grind, or other, any other kind of weekly schedule that we're on. We're not leaving God behind. And notice how this is set in opposition to a life that is focused on retirements, school life, pursuing marriage, housing needs, health. <clears throat> All those things uh, zeroing in on them. Does that sound kind of like boring to you? Does it seem like Paul is saying that we have to leave behind all the things that excite us or interest us in life? I don't think Paul is saying that we're not supposed to look at earth or anything in earth. I don't think that's what he's saying here when he says, set your mind on things above. I think what he's saying is we look at earth as if from heaven. We look at earth downward, from a new perspective. Remember that Jesus' story is our story, and he, it says it in here in verse 1, he rose again, and he's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And from there, we know that he creates, controls, and cares for all the things that interest us in life and occupy our attention, retirements, our friends, whether we're liked in school, our housing needs, our interests in marriage, or our state of marriage. But he cares, and he cares about all those things as they relate to him and as they relate to his purposes in the world. And so when we belong to Jesus, we care a lot about all those things too. But as they relate to Jesus, 
and as they relate to his purposes in our lives and in the world. And I really want us to see that when Jesus says, hey, you should want these things, he's not stepping on our toes. If we really believe the gospel, that we are more sinful than we can see, and that Jesus loves us more than we could even imagine, then it makes a lot of sense that we should want to bring God along in our life, the creator, the redeemer of our souls. God is not like the self-absorbed teacher or the self-absorbed boss who thinks that people should like to spend time with him or her because they're simply in a place of authority. That's not, that's not what God is like. Instead, I think God is a lot more like a parent or a guardian who has given a lot to welcome a child into their family. And naturally, the parent wants to walk through life with that child simply because he or she loves the child. They've given much to have the child in their family, and now they want to be with the child. And it's healthy for the child to then reciprocate that love, to show that love back and bring the parent along appropriately as life progresses. So what does it actually look like then for us to um, not leave God behind, to live for Jesus, to seek the things above? Um, All those things are kind of different ways of saying the same thing, I think. How, In other words, how are we desiring God and his purposes more than anything else in our situation? More than anything? More than any purpose? More than any status? Because I think that some of the struggles that we have in our our Christian walks is that we want to belong to Jesus, but we also don't always want to live for Jesus. There's a conflict of desires happening. And here's a few different ways that that could play out. One way is on a very sort of daily level. For example, a couple weeks ago, I was in the middle of painting the exterior of my home, and I was going on vacation. I had a deadline, and I wanted to get two sides of my house done before I was going to leave for vacation. That was my deadline. Nobody was putting that on me. And I think that in those two weeks of working on that, replacing siding, if anybody here has painted their house, they know that when we say painting the house, what it actually means is doing two weeks worth of prep to paint the house, and then you paint the house, depending on what tools you're using, in like a couple days. So I was doing all those things with a deadline in mind, and I I was struggling to bring God along in that. In like focusing on my siding and replacing it and buying the paint, I I, I kind of had zoned in on the things of earth. Not that I wasn't supposed to paint my house. I wasn't supposed to like set my house project aside and go evangelize. I needed to submit my plans, my purposes, and my desires to the Lord. And I think then it would have been different for me to go about my task um, just in peace, knowing that the Lord is with me. He's over this. Another way that that could look, where we desire God and and Him more than anything, or a way that we, we might struggle, is if there's an area in our life that there's tension, anxiety, difficulty, because if we are honest, there is something in life that we want more than God and his purposes. An example might be a woman who has a certain dream. Maybe it's family, maybe it's career. And as time has gone on, this dream, for whatever reason, has gone unrealized. 
And so anxieties have increased. Frustration has increased. Maybe there's relational tension in this woman's life. And it may be that there's a conflict of desires happening, that she wants this thing in her life maybe more than she wants God and what he has for her. Another example, maybe the most obvious, is if we have a pattern of sin in our life. Uh, Maybe, for example, a man with a lying problem. He wants to belong to Jesus, but he doesn't want to give up the control that lying seems to give him in life. His struggle is one of desire, not mainly one of action. And so there may be areas in our life, whether it's your your daily to-do list or your dreams or maybe uh, how you struggle or or strive to walk in God's ways, um, that we have to confess that we have set our hearts and our minds on earthly things. That we've not sought heavenly things, life with God most of all. But Paul is reminding us here, and I want to remind you this morning, that part of the Christian life is uncovering the ways that we're fixated on earth. That's why it's in this letter. Paul isn't saying, Hey guys, I'm not sure if you're Christians. I've heard that you've thought about earthly things a little bit too much. He's saying, Christian, think about heavenly things. I know you've been maybe thinking in life about earthly things here and there, but leave that behind. Confess that. And as you confess that, remember that Jesus is the one who you're confessing to. And he came to earth, not for earthly things, but to seek and save you. And so he's there to strengthen you and be with you as you confess and aim to look back uh, from, a heavenward, have, from a heavenly perspective. So belonging to Jesus means living for Jesus, and that will entail what we want. And that's what the first four verses are about. And then the next 12 verses uh, are about what we do. That can be pretty easily broken down into two sections. Verses 5 through 11 give us a picture of the clothes that you don't want to put on in the morning, metaphorically, the things that you don't want to do. Uh, And verses 12 through 17 are a compelling picture of what you ought to put on in the morning, uh, the things that you ought to do. And it's worth noting before we dig in that this is kind of This is not really the message that we receive in public spaces these days. It's not, hey, there's two sets of clothes. One is good, one is bad. It's kind of like, wear what you want. Don't let anybody tell you uh, that there's a a right set of clothes and a wrong set of clothes. That there's a a right way to live and a wrong way to live. But even the most ardent, even the most forceful advocates for self-expression admit that there are limits. There's a place where self-expression runs into uh, inappropriate expression because it starts to run into other people. It starts to affect other people. That's why we have lots of laws. We love our freedom in our country, but we set laws because we, we acknowledge that freedom of expression runs into other people's freedom of expression. Well, in the Bible, right and wrong are very clear categories. But God is the one who gives the lines for right and wrong. So even as we read through this list, some of us might feel, it might ring true, some of these things that the Bible calls wrong, it might feel more true, and other things might be like, is is that wrong? And for others of us, it might be different things, like the things that some people feel might not be wrong, other people feel like, yeah, that's wrong, and it might be flipped. But I think the important thing is, 
that <clears throat> we believe that God has sort of the heavenly perch, and he's the authority on all things right and wrong, and so we can trust him. Uh, so look at, look at the beginning of this verse of the things that we're supposed to put off. Verse 5, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. This is pretty vivid stuff here. It makes me think of, uh, I don't know if anybody watches the show Alone. It's a survival show. They're dropped in a place. They only have a few tools. It's a real, like it's not a, it's a, it's a, it is a truly real show, a reality show. Um, and so what happens sometimes when these people are hunting is that they will, because they're hunting to eat, they'll kill, they'll strike the animal with an arrow and the, and the animal won't quite be dead yet. And in order to secure their prey, their, the things that they're hunting, so that they can eat and so that they can put the animal out of its misery, they will go up and they will finish, finish it off. The animal might be a little bit alive, but they go up and they kill it. And that might be pretty vivid. Maybe you get kind of, um, maybe that's not your cup of tea. But that's the kind of picture that, that Paul is giving us here. Put to death those things that belong to your earthly nature. So <clears throat> here's what I want us to do. I'm going to read through this list. And I want us to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. What are the things on this list? That instead of putting to death, maybe you're just letting them sit there. Maybe you're even nurturing these things in your life that God is calling us to finish, to put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. <clears throat> I think there's a little note in there, greed, which is idolatry. I think that's helpful for even thinking about this list as a whole. What are those things in our lives that we think we will, will satisfy us and fill the needs that we have that is not God? Um, coveting, which is idolatry. What are the, for example, what are the things that we look at, things outside of us that we crave, that we think will give us satisfaction that is not God? <clears throat> and look at the language here. Since you have put off the new self, sorry, put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, have already put on the new self. We're not killing sin in order to earn a new self from God. The reason we strive is not in order to belong to Jesus. It's because we belong to Jesus. When someone goes from unemployed to employed, say as a mechanic, they don't fix cars and perform car maintenance in order to become a mechanic. They are already a mechanic. And it's the same way when you belong to Jesus. You have already put off your earthly nature and put on a heavenly nature. And so God is calling us to be what we are, to, to put sin to death. And just like a mechanic who is already fixing cars wants to improve his craft because there's something good about that, becoming a better mechanic, knowing your craft better, we also as Christians are looking to something. And it's in verse 10, 11. Look at verse 10. 
You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. No matter who you are or what you've done in life, you, if you are in Christ, you're being renewed. If you're in Christ, you're being remade into the image of Jesus. And then in verse 11, in Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul is saying that in the end, the only distinction that matters, not what profession you had, not what level of schooling, not how much money you had, the only distinction that matters is if you are in Christ. Because, and here's what we see in verse 11, it's not just that God cares a lot about you as a person and like what you're doing. He does. But we need to look at a larger scope. God is actually remaking a new humanity. The first humanity in Adam strayed and was bent by sin. But this new humanity who's, who's, who God is gathering under Christ is going to be a new humanity that is remade and, re and given a new earth. There's something bigger on the horizon than simply what we do in our day-to-day. But this renewal and changed humanity, it, we won't be a people of do-nots. Yes, we just looked at a list of do-nots. And if, and if that's all we had from God was lists of do-nots, then it might be true, the popular caricature of Christianity, that we don't have fun and we judge everyone who does. That might actually be true. But God never takes away anything without giving us something better in its place. And so while we are supposed to hunt for sin in our lives and put anything that we find to death, he also gives us tools for pruning and for nurturing what's good, true, and beautiful. And while we read the list of vices, I asked you to open yourself up to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now as we read the list of virtues, I want you to open yourself up to the joy of the Holy Spirit to see this list for what it is. It's a glorious invitation to walk in the way of the Lord and to be renewed into his image. So let these words pour over you. And we'll, I, I, my hope is that as I read them again, your imagination will be firing, ignited, and that your holy desires will be kindled. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ, to which you were called in one body, rule your hearts. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Belonging to Jesus means that he empowers us to live in this way. <clears throat> Just like death and resurrection has brought sin to the ground, ready to be struck. The work of Jesus brings virtues near and righteousness near, ready to be put on. Paul is comparing doing these good things to putting on clothes, like we all do in the morning. 
And that almost sounds too easy. Is it really, is, is, is letting the peace of Christ rule in my heart really as easy as taking that gray cotton tea that I really like and putting it on in the morning? I think we would all acknowledge that change is difficult. It, when Paul compares being patient, for example, to putting on a, a t-shirt, I don't think that we should think that Paul is thinking about a life. He's not saying a life of patience, changing who you are fundamentally, is as easy as putting on a t-shirt. I think what Paul is thinking about is in the moment when events happen to us and we have a choice to respond either in patience or in anger. Like this morning, when my three-year-old was unwilling to... Um, eat the yogurt dished out to him because he thought that his brother had one more scoop. And then he got up and threw his bear across the room. In that moment, I, it might not be, it, it, it might be in that moment that the Lord is calling me, just like I put on a cotton tea, to choose patience instead of anger. The Lord did not help me in that moment this morning, but I trust that he forgives me. Um, and I say that tongue in cheek, but also I do believe that. Um, and so maybe even that though, even like the event, responding in the event appropriately feels tremendously difficult. Maybe you are in a rut and you've been stuck in a rut of choosing wrong. Um, but I have good news to you. There's another verse in Colossians 2 that we need to, we need to hear. We need to soak in. Um, for those who are united with Christ, listen to who Christ is again. This is, this is from Colossians 2. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is head over every ruler and authority. If there is something in your life that you feel is a large battle to be won, is a large vice to be overcome. Maybe you've tried for years. Christ is God himself and Christ fills you. And that doesn't mean that overnight we're going to change, but it means that he will give us the power in the moment by his Holy Spirit to choose good. He can do that. So my prayer is that God would meet us afresh in his love and his strength to live for him. We would know that we belong to Jesus. We know that he strengthens us to live for him. And that this vision in verses 12 through 17 would become a, a reality in the global church, that it would become a reality in my church up in Concord, a church plant, Lord willing, in Henniker, and that it would become a reality in this church. That we would be people who forgive each other because we are fundamentally people who have received a forgiveness that we did not earn. That we'd be people united by genuine love uh, that we have for each other, as the body of Christ and as anybody made in the image of a good God. That we'd be people whose hearts are not ruled by fears and anxieties, but people whose hearts are overcome by the peace of Jesus. That we would be people who love God's word because it brings us close to him. And it's the means by which he draws close to us and, and therefore how we draw close to one another. And that over all these things, we would be a people marked by overflowing gratitude. Thankful in seasons of plenty, thankful in seasons of lack, thankful in seasons of backbreaking work, thankful in seasons of rest and retirement, thankful in seasons of health, thankful in seasons of sickness, thankful in life, and even thankful in death. 
because Jesus' story has become our story. And we know that while we live, we live in the strength of Jesus who sits on high at the right hand of God. And even in our death, Jesus' story is our story. And he's conquered death, the last enemy. And he will vanquish it completely when he comes again. And so we can be thankful at all times and in all circumstances as God teaches us and leads us to do. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for um, taking us in. Thank you that we can say that we belong to you because we've chosen that you are the, we've decided that you are the only one worth belonging to. I pray, Lord, that you would help us grow in our understanding of what it means to belong to you in whatever season and um, circumstances each of us find ourselves in this morning. I pray that you would just give us a settled confidence that we belong to you. And that what that means is that you strengthen us and guide us into what it means to live for you. Um, We might feel aimless. We might feel like we're drowning in our tasks. um, But you will lead us day by day, uh, and I pray that you'd open up our our minds and our hearts to desire those things more, to desire the things above. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.